Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. And hey, this episode of Scripture Uncovered is episode number 100. We're crossing the 100 mark today. So we should have a little celebration here at the end. Uh, perhaps open a bottle of champagne or something. Well, you recall that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. Remember Elizabeth and Zachariah, the parents of John the Baptist? Elizabeth was a relative of Mary's. And when Elizabeth, in her old age, became pregnant, that was an extraordinary thing. For six month, months, she and Zachariah were plunged into silence to ponder the magnitude of the events that had taken place. Meanwhile, Mary becomes pregnant up in Nazareth after the Annunciation. And when she learns that she is indeed pregnant, she has to tell Joseph, because she's betrothed to him. It's a binding legal contract. They were, they were to be married. Well, we don't know what she said or what Joseph said, but we do know that Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly. So she left Nazareth. And where could she go? A pregnant teenager, what, 13, 14, maybe 15? Who would understand any of this? Elizabeth, her relative. Mary travels from Nazareth to En-Karem, a suburb of Jerusalem today where Elizabeth lived and knocked on the door, and Elizabeth opened the door, and the baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb. You know the story. So John and Jesus, Jesus and John, were cousins. They grew up together. They're only six months apart in age. Mary and Joseph and Jesus would go to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festivals, Passover for sure, and perhaps Pentecost and Tabernacles as well. And at Passover, you have a million people in town, like a Super Bowl Sunday. So where do you stay? Well, with relatives. And I would imagine that Joseph and Mary and Jesus stayed with Zachariah, Elizabeth, and John. So they knew each other quite well. And it was John the Baptist who, in the Gospel according to John, said to his disciples when Jesus passed, Look, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew who he was. So we put it now to Matthew chapter 11. And we read that after Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So the twelve are going out now teaching and preaching, their first outing. And then Jesus, after he sent them off, he continued doing his job too. Now, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, Herod had arrested John the Baptist and put him in prison in the fortress of Macarius, which is in Jordan of today. And when he heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? 
Or should we expect someone else? Well, John clearly knew who he was. But Jesus is not doing what John or anyone else thought the Messiah would do. What did they expect? Well, the community at Qumran, the Essene community, uh, I think a lot of the thinking of John and Jesus both were influenced by the thinking at Qumran. They were expecting the, the righteous one to come, one who would come and make things right, one who would come and throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire and throw off the corrupt religion in the temple, who would bring the kingdom of God into the world. That's a pretty big thing. And now John is told that Jesus had indeed been out teaching and preaching, and now this motley band of 12 has been sent out to teach and preach as well. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And John is frankly puzzled. Am I wrong about this, he said? So he sent his disciples to go and ask. I, I, do I know who you are? Are you the one? Well, Jesus replied, Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor, and blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I think that's a direct comment to John. Well, John's disciples were leaving, and Jesus began to speak to the crowd, because they confront him in front of a large crowd. So as they're going back to John, Jesus said to the crowd, What? What did you go out into the desert to see? What? You, the way you're looking at me, the way you're looking at John's disciples going back, the, the man's in prison. What did you go out to see when you were following John? When you were baptized down at the Jordan River opposite Jericho, what did you expect? A reed swayed by the wind? Someone who blew this way and that? If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothing? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What did John wear? Camel's hair? Oh, horrible thing to wear. Heavy? Smelly? A leather belt around his waist? Long hair down to his butt? Because John had a lifelong Nazarite vow and had never cut his hair, and John is now 30-some years old, never had a haircut, never had a beard trimmed, strange-looking guy, and a bag on his side, a leather bag with locusts that would reach in and pull one out and bite his head off and look at the crowd and say, You brood of vipers, what are you doing here? You went out to see some fancy preacher in fancy clothes? No. What did you go to see? A prophet? Yes. You identified John as a prophet, and you were right. More than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. 
That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the, the ending note of the Hebrew Scriptures. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. John has been pushing it forward. I've been pushing it forward. And forceful men have laid hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he, John, is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. The very end of Malachi. The very end of Malachi. Let me, let me read it to you. I have to turn back over to it. Let me see here. There we go. Malachi. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. End of Hebrew Scriptures. So, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah who was to come the end of Malachi. He who has ears, let him hear. John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah at the end of Malachi, the one who announces the coming of the Messiah. So to what can I compare this generation? You know, you didn't come out to see a reed swayed by the wind, but you're certainly swayed by the wind. You know, I, I go from one place to another to another. And people respond, for the most part, well. But others, no. What were they expecting? They're like children in a marketplace calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John... Came neither eating nor drinking. They say, oh, he, he has a demon. He's a weird guy. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. John is doubting. You are doubting. Others are not. What, what did you come to see? What did you expect? And then Jesus, boy, he gets on a, on a streak here. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. They came, they heard the message, they enjoyed the teaching, they, they were drawn to it. They thought, my, what a fine teacher, and, and, the, and the miracles and the healings. But they didn't change. They went right back to doing what they were doing before. So Jesus said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, where Jesus lives for three years, in Peter's home, the headquarters for his public ministry, will you be lifted up to the skies? Oh, you'll be a glowing city on a hill. No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this very day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum, an important town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Think of the Sea of Galilee as a clock. It's around 1030, right on the shore. Right along the Via Maris, the main international trade route where Matthew was tax collector at the toll booth. Capernaum, home of Jesus. In his day, maybe 15,000 people lived there, and it was a wealthy town. You can tell from the archaeological remains, they're, they're, they were quite, it was quite a wealthy town. No, you go down to the depths. Whatever happened to Capernaum, was totally destroyed by an earthquake in the 700s, leveled. And it wasn't discovered until early in the 20th century. Today, we visit Capernaum, the archaeological remains. We see the remains of Peter's house. We see the foundation of the synagogue only 37 yards away from Peter's house. It's a tourist attraction today. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. You know, the great rabbinical scholars, the, uh, the, the great political leaders didn't accept any of this. But innocent children, people who were perhaps not well-educated at all. Think of, of the disciples. They were commercial fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They were not fancy people. They were, they were hard workers. There were farmers. There were fishermen. They accepted. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son, that is me, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John, my cousin, that I grew up with, my best friend, he was doubting. He was confused. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one truly knows. And those to whom I choose to reveal God. So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls.
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, in light of his pep talk to the disciples, I don't know, <laughs> but no. You know, we, we, step into the fam- we step into the family of God, into a relationship with God through Christ. And it's not going to be all a bowl of cherries. There are going to be hard times. There are going to be times of doubt. And yet, it's the one thing, the one thing that sustains us, that keeps us going. In the end, it's that relationship that matters. In the end, it's that relationship that enables us to pass through a dark and dreary and burdensome world. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And of course, the Sabbath is a day of rest. You're not to work on the Sabbath. Fair enough. You don't open up your shop and and sell donuts. You don't uh, don't go into the office. You shall not work on the Sabbath. Well, the rabbis, rightfully so, said, well, what kind of work? What work? What does work mean? And they decided early on that work fell into 18 categories that had to do with the erection of the tabernacle in the wilderness. What had to be done to get the tabernacle up and operating? 18 categories of work. Making fire, for example, was a category of work. Well, all right, let's define that. Making fire. You you, you don't uh, build a bonfire. But we don't want to transgress that law So we better build a fence that pushes outward a little bit to make sure we're not transgressing that law. So when we travel to Israel on our Footsteps of Jesus teaching tours, we stay at a five-star hotel in Jerusalem. Very nice hotel, the Inval Hotel. The Sabbath begins Friday night at sundown, and it continues until Saturday night at sundown when the first three stars appear in the sky. So we get there before the sun goes down. We have a wonderful dinner at the Inval. And then you wake up in the morning and breakfast is a cold breakfast. Now normally, breakfasts in Israel are really good, but not on Shabbat. You have cereal, you have fruit, you have uh, nothing heated, nothing cooked. Why? Because turning on the stove or the oven makes fire. So you don't do it. Now, when we arrive at the in ball and we check in, there are four elevators to the left, a bank of elevators, and the one on the far right is a Sabbath elevator, a Shabbat elevator. If we go in and we check in and we have rooms, say, on the seventh floor, we get in the elevator, we push number seven, and up we go. But if you happen to get into the Sabbath elevator and Shabbat has begun, every single button is lit on the elevator because 
If you push the button, it makes an electrical contact, which may spark, which is fire. Thus, a Shabbat elevator. So you see how you build the fence outward from the core principle. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' disciples were hungry as they're going through the fields, and they began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. They just picked some grain off the heads and munched on them as they went along. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. They're picking grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, shaking his head, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, the tabernacle, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. In the tabernacle, proper, you go through the main courtyard entrance to the tabernacle itself, which has two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies, the most holy place. In the holy place, the first chamber, you have to the left a solid gold menorah. It provides the only light for the interior of the holy place. Directly in front of you is a small table of incense. So the priest enters twice a day, bearing the prayers of the people and symbolically sending them up to God in the form of that incense. And to the right, you have a table of showbread. To the right is a table with 12 loaves of unleavened bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and wine, bread and wine. So David was on the run. King Saul had sent out ninjas to uh, assassinate David. David went out the back window while the ninjas were coming through the front, and he took off. David would be an outlaw on the run for nearly a decade. But he left with nothing except what he was wearing. He had to get out fast. So he went to the tabernacle. He knew the priest at the tabernacle. And he asked, do you, you know, I, I, I'm on a special assignment from the king, urgent assignment, top secret, and I left so quickly, ah, I forgot my supplies. Do you have anything to eat here? And the priest said, uh, well, no, it's late at night, and uh, the only thing I have is the consecrated bread in the tabernacle on the table of showbread. But if you need it, you can take that. So David did. That bread could only be eaten by the priest. But the priest allowed David to take it. And David said, you know, I left so urgently, I forgot my sword. Do you have any weapons around here? Well, the priest said, only, we only have one, the sword of Goliath that you killed him with and gave me. Oh, it's a great sword. I'll take that one. So he does. But get this. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord 
of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, Queen Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. You don't even approach any hint of work. And yet, here were Jesus and his disciples going through a field and just picking some grain on the way through and munching on it. The point here is that human need always trumps ritual law. Another example. If you come to visit Los Angeles and you go into Beverly Hills and, and you're walking up Rodeo Drive with all the fancy stores and you buy some souvenirs, you buy all oh, some horribly expensive clothing here and you have your shopping bags and uh, with, with uh, the, the clothing labels and and you're having a fine time on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And you're so excited and you're talking with your husband or wife. And you step off the curb against the light and you're hit by a car. Well, it might be the Sabbath, Saturday afternoon. But you can be sure the ambulance will come flying down the street, scoop you up and take you to Cedar sinai Hospital. And a nice Jewish surgeon will operate on you on the Sabbath. Why? Because human need trumps ritual law. However, if you're in Los Angeles and you decide that you want to have a, some cosmetic surgery by that, that famous plastic surgeon who worked on so-and-so, and you try to make an appointment with that surgeon, who's on staff at Cedar sinai he'll be happy to do it, unless it's the Sabbath. You won't find any elective surgeries being done at Cedar sinai Hospital on the Sabbath. You see the point? And that's what Jesus pushes out here. He, he said, let me illustrate another to you. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull them out? So how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Human need trumps ritual law. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man had a, had a withered hand, a crippled hand. Stretch out your hand. And it was completely restored, as sound as the other. The Pharisees went bonkers over that. And they plotted how it might kill Jesus. Human need trumps ritual law. Now, if I were a Pharisee, I'd say, the man, I, thank God the man's been healed. But not on the Sabbath. He could have been healed the day before or the day after. This was not a life-threatening event. That's what I would argue if I were a Pharisee. Now, aware of this uh, pushback, Jesus withdrew from that place. And many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Now, remember, it's the Sabbath. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Well, they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. And all the people were utterly astonished. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Notice how John was doubting at the beginning. And now the people are saying, well, it sure looks like he is. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, he's doing all this on the Sabbath. It, it, it's only by Beelzebub, by Satan, the prince of demons, this man drives out demons. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts. It wasn't hard to read them. Look at their faces. Every kingdom divided against itself, he said, will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. What a stupid comment. I'm driving out demons by the prince of demons. Duh. Well, that makes them even more angry. And what will happen next? Well, we will find out on Friday. So thank you for listening to the 100th episode of Scripture Uncovered. And again, if you would like to join us in our St. Paul the Apostle multi-quarter course, just visit the website, logosbiblestudy.com, click on Featured Course, and you will have not only this quarter's courses on the prison epistles, but the last two quarters as well. Videos for the whole thing, all three quarters, if you register this quarter. And we have two more to go. So we'll have a, quite a good time studying really in-depth St. Paul the Apostle. I hope to see you there and, uh, and with me on Zoom on Saturday mornings, 10 to 12. If you're registered in the featured course, we'll be together right online every Saturday morning and get to talk to each other and interact and meet all your other fellow students. So hope you do and we'll see you then. Thank you for being here. Blessings to you. Bye-bye now.